0: Welcome back to another exciting season of the Airways Podcast. I'm your host, Helene Villamitar, aviation enthusiast and podcast lovers. We have a special treat for you. Aerospace journalist and pilot, Chris Smith, sat down with none other than John Olive Elias Lindstrom, fleet chief pilot of North Atlantic, to discuss their groundbreaking Boeing 787 Antarctica touchdown. So, Chris, thank you for joining me. Uh, Before we get on to the interview, can you just tell us about the interview and your your take on it?
1: Yeah, thanks, Helwing. And uh, it was really interesting to chat to Captain Lindstrom. And for maybe some of the, the listeners that might not know too much about the flight, it took place in the middle of November And uh, North Atlantic Airways were contracted by Air Contact, which is the world's largest and leading air broker. And this flight was operated on behalf of the Norwegian Polar Institute. Now, North Atlantic Airways are based in Scandinavia, and they were basically operating right at the other end of the world. Uh, And they positioned their aircraft down to Cape Town, and uh, they were uh, taking cargo and also uh, personnel to Troll Airfield in Antarctica. And it was interesting. really, interesting to speak to Captain Lindström and learn more about the planning that made the trip such a success.
0: Yeah, for sure, it's a very interesting journey indeed. Uh, flying such an aircraft down there, um, it's interesting because you're just pushing the boundaries, right, of aviation. It's just that's what it is, and touching down on that icy continent. It's an engaging, uh, interview for sure. So, uh, thank you so much. Anything else you want to say before
1: we begin? Well, I don't, I don't want to say too much because I want people to actually listen to the uh, the podcast, but all I will say is that Captain Lindstrom was marvelous and he gave us so much detail about what went on. And this is many months before the flight. And even I was blown away. at The 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 attention to detail that went in and North Atlantic Airways thought of the what-if scenario of the what-if scenario of the what-if scenario and it was really really interesting because they really went to great lengths to to make as safe as possible and address as many risks as they practically could
0: Mm -hmm. amazing yeah well it's a fun listen for sure interesting for uh, aviation lovers and pilots and everyone uh so yeah fasten your seat belts grab your headsets and prepare for unforgettable season as we explore the world of aviation kicking the season off with this uh, very interesting interview and be sure to subscribe to the airways podcast on airwaysmagazine.substack.com to get not only the the airways notam newsletter but also every new episode, every two weeks. So let's get on with the interview. Thank you, Chris.
1: Thanks, Helway. So welcome to the Airways Podcast. Uh, My name's Chris Smith, and I've got the privilege of speaking today to Captain Olav Lindstrom, he's the fleet chief pilot from North Atlantic Airways. And some of our listeners and some of our readers at Airways may remember that in the middle of November, North Atlantic Airways flew the first 787 to Antarctica by no means an easy feat. And Captain Lindstrom was actually in command of that uh, very, memorable trip. And he's here today to give us a bit of a behind the scenes look as to what went on during that planning process. And uh, I think one of the reasons why I thought it'd be really good to speak to you today, Captain Lindstrom, there'll be a number of listeners who will probably underestimate the sheer amount of planning that had to go in to make this trip such a success. So hopefully you can give us a A bit of a better understanding as to what went on. But rather than me tell our listeners a little bit of a background as to why you flew there and what you were flying, why don't you take a moment to enlighten maybe some of our listeners that might not know very much about the trip. So what were you flying? Why were you flying there? Um, Just give us a bit of an overview about the flights.
2: Sure, absolutely. Thank you for uh, having me here. It's, It's great to be on. So, um, what we did was uh, we flew the the first uh, Boeing seven eight seven to Antarctica and uh, a uh, Norwegian airfield uh, called Troll Airfield. It's next to the Norwegian research station down there, which is called uh, Troll Station. This airfield has uh, received smaller airplanes in the past, but we were the largest one to land there so far. And um, that's what happened in in uh, in on the fifteenth of November. However, the planning started much earlier than that. We uh we got the word. Uh we had a, an initial meeting with the Norwegian Polar Institute in March 2023 20, where they uh, asked us if this was something that we we could do and and we uh we said that probably but it's going to require quite a bit of preparation and and quite a bit of uh, uh research to see what, what's what's possible in terms of flying to a landing on an, on an ice, uh, runway, it, it's, a it's a glacier. So, so it would be landing on, uh, on, a, on ice and it would be the first seven, eight, seven to land on, on a glacier and probably the first one to land on, on an ice runway as well. So that was, uh, the start of it. And it was eight months prior to that. And, and a big portion of these eight months were, were spent on quite detailed planning as you can imagine
1: yeah and um I think we'll um probably struggle to touch the tip of the iceberg to usage an expression, but we'll we'll give it a go, but you mentioned that obviously the um you, you were told a number of months in advance that this trip was likely to happen, so whenever you were first notified, just cast your mind back, and what did you? think we're going to be
2: the biggest challenges from a flight operations perspective from the outset i guess in a way that was one of the questions we asked ourselves too um when you get a request for a flight that is so far from what we normally do uh one of the questions um that the starting question was where do we begin in this planning uh fortunately the um Norwegian Polar Institute were, were great uh, to uh, to help us out. They have had other operators flying in there before. And um, some of the challenges that uh, they presented us with were a, a good starting point. Uh, one of them being that um, is the glacier, the ice strong enough to land on? Uh, that was clearly a, a good starting point. If it weren't, then, then there was no point in, in continuing with the project. There's been quite a lot of research landing on ice runways going back to the 50s. So there were quite a lot of uh, research material, quite a lot of studies that had been done. But of course, nothing had been done on on a 787 in particular. So we actually sat down and and we wrote a a research paper on on the uh, bearing strength of glacier runways for Boeing 787s. And we really went down to basics here with, with, uh, looking at, uh, the, the tire footprint of the, of the 787, uh, the weight distribution. And, uh, we did the, did the math on, on that from, from the very, uh, ground up. Normally when you do, uh, an assessment on non-bearing strength, you use a system called uh, PCN ACN, which is, a uh, pavement classification number and you just compare that that number with with the number of the aircraft and, and that's you call it a day but that's that system is done for it's made for for uh, runways and and uh, tarmacs that have a top layer and and a subgrade so this, it doesn't apply at all for for ice uh, we finished our study we had it uh, reviewed by the um, norwegian uh, civil aviation authority and uh, some uh, engineers at Boeing as well. And there is quite a bit of margin. I think it's, uh, the strength is, is 20 times that, uh, uh, that was needed. So, so there's, there was no issue at all with, with the bearing strength. But uh, that type of study sort of pointed out what we had to do. We, we couldn't take anything for granted because you're, we're flying uh, to a place which is completely new for, for this type of aircraft. So We had to go into detail on everything. And and we involved the Norwegian uh, Civil Aviation Authority from a a starting point as well, telling them this is what we plan to do and this is how we plan to prepare to do so. And uh, we wanted to have a complete open uh, conversation with the Aviation Authority so that there were no surprises just before the flight. Um, They don't really give an approval, but they give a sort of, no objection. And, and that's what we were looking for.
1: Okay, really interesting. And you mentioned that other operators had uh, flown to the same location beforehand. Did you link up with them to, to try and get any past experiences or any, uh, any wisdom? Or did, did, did you uh, keep the, uh, the research and the planning solely within the
2: uh, entities that you've already mentioned? No, we relied quite a bit on on previous operators, and and it's it's uh when this is presented with the videos of the landings and everything, it really looks like we're pioneers here. But we were indeed standing on the shoulder of 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 the people that have been there before. Uh, we had interviews with with various pilots that have had uh, years and even decades of experience flying in Antarctica. And about two weeks, three weeks prior to the flight, I joined uh, a crew flying a. Um, a uh, Falcon 7X down there uh, just on the jump seat to, uh, to see how they did and uh, to get a feel for what what the uh, airfield looked like, what the challenges were and to also sort of do an audit on the facilities that are available down there. Fascinating stuff. As
1: a Norwegian operator and you're Swedish, you're used to flying in cold conditions but tell us what differences there are with flying in Antarctica versus flying in the north of Scandinavia in the middle of winter?
2: There are some similarities and quite a few differences. The, I would say that if you do a normal landing, it's pretty much the same as, as landing on an ISA runway in, um, in Scandinavia. And I've landed on runways with worse braking action than what we had at, uh, at the airfield, the troll airfield, they, uh, they used the same equipment to measure the braking action. And they, uh, we had historical data going, going back 10 years for the field. And they reported the latest readings just an hour before we landed. And the braking action is actually quite, it's, it's good. It's uh, similar to that of what you have on a, on a wet, uh, wet runway. So that's, that part there is, is, uh, was not so much of a challenge. But uh, weather forecasting is indeed a challenge. Uh, there is, um, we have enough fuel when we take off from Cape Town, for the, the last port of call before we, before we land at Troll Airfield. So we have enough fuel to fly down to Troll Airfield and fly back again. So if we arrive down there and we realize the weather is not good enough, we could just fly back to Cape Town. That's sort of part of the, the business uh, case for flying a 787 down there. We can bring a lot of cargo. But we can bring a lot of bulky cargo. We can get back to that later on. But uh, we can also fly down there and we don't have to refuel because fueling in Antarctica is extremely expensive. The fuel comes in on a on a ship and then it's transported over the ice with snowmobiles. So we're looking at a cost of of like $10 per, per kilo. So... Um, that was a big part of the other of business case for flying flying a 787 down there now a good side effect of that is that we can fly down there and if we realized we can even hold for a while and see what the weather were like and then come back but as you can imagine that's quite costly you don't fly down there just to realize that now we can't land and, and we come back so the weather forecasting started about a week before we had a dedicated uh calls with a a weather forecast company called storm geo and uh we compared their data with uh, something called amps Uh, if you google amps antarctica you'll get that website and that's the uh the american um uh weather model forecast for antarctica so the weather is rough down there it is extremely rough at times they they say they have uh wind uh, their wind meters for example are are going up to 99 meters per second and it's quite common that it goes it goes to 99 so it's probably more than that and the weather can change real quick and and it behaves in ways that it doesn't in other parts of the world so we spent a lot of time together with the weather forecasters to ensure that the time we were planning to arrive was going to be good weather and we needed quite good weather i can get back to that as well Um, and we expected from the start that we're going to have a delay. They say about 50% of all planned flights to, uh, Antarctica or at least to troll airfield will be delayed due to weather. And, And we had a delay as well of about 17 hours, I think. And that was expected. Uh, the, the Polar Institute, they said, take your time. We don't want you to, uh, to fly down on, on marginal weather. Uh, so we, uh, we waited in, and We could do a, a five five uh, day forecast in in Oslo, and and we can delay our flight. We could delay our flights down to to Cape Town, and then in Cape Town we had uh, a forecast twelve hours before, and then six hours before, and, it, and in into the very last, you know, before starting the engines was the last time I, I called the, the weather forecaster. And uh, of course, as you get closer to the departure time, the decision to cancel or to delay becomes more and more challenging. You know that before any start, if you have to delay at that point, you probably, well, you definitely spoil the catering, but we also had one and a half ton of of food supplies on board and portion of that might get spoiled too. But if you take off and you fly and you have to come back, well, that's a much bigger cost. So I would say in terms of what's different to landing in in winter weather in, in Scandinavia, that was probably the, the major difference. Okay, that's really interesting. And
1: you described a scenario where you had so much flexibility with your planning. And I think I actually thought the data were probably fixed and set and stone. And I'm sure many listeners might think the same as well. But it's really quite interesting to, to learn that. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you were basically... Only leaving Oslo whenever you knew there was a window of opportunity for you to get all the way down and all the way back to Cape Town without having any weather interruptions is that correct?
2: That's correct, yeah, we had the aircraft for for at least two weeks and um the uh, from the outset it was it was decided and it was made clear to everyone involved that we will not uh depart Oslo and we will not depart Cape Town unless we are one hundred percent certain that that the weather is uh, is acceptable.
1: Okay, so I guess for uh, yourself and your colleagues there was maybe a little bit of time sitting at home, uh, waiting for the uh, the green light. It sounds like uh, for whenever the weather presented that that window of opportunity. But uh, just before we move on, I, there's one other thing I'd just like to mention because you you uh, referred back to your. Uh, days of flying and much poorer weather, and uh, in, in terms of maybe landing on runway conditions, which are certainly much poorer than than what you landed at down in Troll. But I know that in Scandinavia it's quite common. Though, correct me if I'm wrong, but they'll 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 roll the the snow on the runway and put sand down and to to, to give you some sort of braking coefficient. But how did that compare with landing on sheet ice?
2: So um, what they do, they prepare the runway uh, beforehand and, and up close it looks quite a bit like a ski slope. So they, it's not ice directly, there is ice and then on top of it there is a, maybe an inch or so of, of uh, sort of grated uh, ice mixed with, with snow. And I, apparently that is the, the best way to, to prepare the runway or an ice runway for, for the ideal braking action. The, um, uh, it's, it's an interesting perspective when you land and that's also, also different. Um, as you know, a wider runway has a different perspective on, on touchdown and, and this runway is cleared to about 90 meters, a hundred meters wide. And on, on top of it, the, uh, sort of where you land is not in the center of that cleared area. It's, It's sort of slightly to the side. So, uh, touchdown is, uh, is interesting. It feels like you're landing in this case. It was like landing on uh, the left side of, of the runway, but it's still in the, in the center. Um, there is, uh, and the, the, touchdown is like any other touchdown. And once you're down, uh, because the, the, the whole glacier is moving and it's on top of a, of a rocky surface, even though that surface is, is, uh, uh, 700 meters below the the ice uh, surface. It's not very. It's not perfectly smooth. It's it's uh, it's quite um, bumpy. W- once you're down, all within within uh, the limits, of course. But but it's it's not a smooth runway as such. Even if it looks quite smooth when when you look look down the runway. The other thing that's different is uh, they, as I said, they clear about a 90 meter wide white strip on on the on the ice there and and then they put up uh markers uh which are basically just these flags that you see on downhill ski ski races um when you're on base before so in this case before turning final, it is very difficult to see where the where we well, you know where the field is because we spent hours and hours studying pictures and 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 maps and and charts and everything so you know it's going to be there but looking you can barely see it and then as it turns final it's suddenly right there in front of you and and it and then it's not a problem so here's where in the weather brief we look at not just uh visibility and and uh, cloud base but also at contrast and horizon horizon is so that when you flare uh, you have a horizon in front of you. If there's a poor horizon, ice and ice and snow and a sky or a cloud looks the same, so there, it just blurs together. So you have no horizon and touchdown. That you want to avoid. So, so you're looking for a, a good good horizon. But you also look for good contrast. If you have certain times of, of cloud layers, you get no shadows. And when you have no shadows. It's, it becomes very difficult to make out where the where the field is going to be. Uh, with with a, a, a blue sky or a clear sky, you have uh, you know of course millions of tiny little shadows that that make the the field stand out much more. So that's something that is in this weather report that you normally don't see in uh, other types of of weather reports. Fascinating. Um, you've
1: already talked about the, some of the complications with landing, but uh, for those listeners that, that might not maybe appreciate landing an aircraft in the last few feet, it, it's, it's very well, unless it's uh, unless you're landing in low visibility, it's very much a visual manoeuvre, but when you're landing on a tarmac runway, you've got the grass around you, you've got the, the visual sort of characteristics of the, the runway, which you can use to obviously gauge, how high you are, and and what your rate of descent is. But you don't have those same visual cues, so flaring and adjusting the rate of descent for touchdown, that must be really quite challenging, because I'm assuming you just don't have the same visual cues that
2: you normally would have. How did you handle that? There is indeed that. It's um, um, something that we spend quite a bit of time Talking about and and we 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 ran some simulator sessions, but of course the simulator is not going to be exactly the same. Uh, how do we do this flare? Uh, we practiced uh, beforehand in the simulator as well to do the flare without the radio altimeter. Uh, in, a, in an airliner, the aircraft counts down, the, the radio altimeter counts down, so that helps a lot. Uh, but of course, we weren't one hundred percent certain that the uh, radio altimeter was going to be reliable on ice. Uh, a lot of the planning was uh, talking about what if, what if the radio altimeter doesn't work, uh, what if, and so on. Uh, even earlier on, on the approach, we have head-up displays in the 787, which are extremely helpful in, in this, uh, for this type of landing, because there is no, there's no uh, vertical guidance, there is no ILS, and there is no uh, Pappy. There is a PAPI, but it's almost impossible to see an, in the bright light. So we spent quite a bit of time just, you know, like back to old school, uh, judging your, your, your approach path the way you do in a, in a Cessna or, or a smaller airplane when you land on a field without, without any vertical guidance. We did a lot of that in the simulator. I think all this together sort of helped uh, in that. And then, of course, as always, when landing on a, on a slippery runway or a runway where you don't really know, exactly what the braking action is going to be you don't really aim for a for a smooth landing you aim for a for a firm landing and we knew that as long as we we do some sort of flare here and we don't overdo it it's gonna be uh, no problem it was a lot of uh, adjustments in the very last uh 30 to 20 feet um there's a bit of a slope on the on the runway it's about a one percent slope so so uh, it's uphill. Um, and I think you can see in the video a uh, sort of a last-second adjustment to to not uh, bring it down too hard. But uh, altogether, it was uh, one of the things that we spent quite a bit of time talking about uh, before the flight. And um,
1: you've already touched on simulators and how you use uh, simulator sessions to, to help prepare you, but. Can you tell us any, um, any other training that you
2: did? We, um, just briefly on the simulator training, what we did as well was from the out, outset, we wanted to make sure that what we did here was as close to our normal operation as possible because we knew that it will not be normal at the end of the day. We're flying to Antarctica, but the more sort of familiar procedures and pr- familiar systems we can use, the better starting point. So we had uh, uh, Jeppesen, our, our chart provider, they uh, tailor-made charts for us. Uh, so the, the Polar Institute, they have some sort of uh, basic procedures, uh, r and procedures, approach procedures, and we had charts made from that. And it's quite interesting because everything moves, right? It's a glacier. So they are, these charts are dated, it's like only valid for November, uh, 2023. So if we go there again, we're going to have to remake them with, with new positions. Now, we, um, uh, so we could prepare in the simulator with those charts. Uh, in addition to that, we also train the crew in in polar survival training uh, where we, uh, you know, you depart from, from Cape Town and you are in the Cape Town FIR. But you are quite far away from civilization. the The distances are quite mind-boggling. When you take off from from Cape Town, it's a five-hour flight to Troll. The equivalent on the northern hemisphere would be to have your service station for a, a like if you fly to Svalbard, but you would service it from Algiers or somewhere on the African North Coast. So, you, and you take off, and it's immediately just. The Southern Ocean, so so you're you're really far away from civilization, and um, what we did there was uh, we had a, uh, an air force uh, survival expert that came in and, and had a, a course survival polar survival training for for the the entire crew.
1: That, that that's just another example of the the mind-boggling layers of planning that went into making the trip so successful. But you, you just touched on survival, which actually leads me into the next question. Uh, you're going to a really, boy. You, you went to a really remote airfield and we're so used to seeing uh, sophisticated fire and rescue equipment at airports where you see wide-body airplanes flying in and out. Of. I'm guessing the fire and rescue capability at Troll would be a little bit more limited. Um, how did you manage having less in the way of infrastructure to support you if something did go wrong
2: yeah that was uh, also a big part of the the preparation and and a starting point here is that when you fly down there you're in the hands of the polar norwegian polar institute which means that they limit severely who can come along it was either your crew or you are one of the researchers in in the um uh passenger on the passenger list There, there were no other we cannot bring uh, any other uh, passengers or anybody else from, from the airline, we, we brought only all, all the crew members. So the first step is to just restrict the number of uh, people on board. Uh, the 787 in the configuration that we fly currently takes 338 passengers, but we had only uh, 45 if I'm not mistaken. And um, the because they have had operators flying down there in the past and they have put requirements in place for the search and uh, re- not search and rescue, but the fire rescue at the field, they uh, already had uh, quite a bit of equipment. So they had enough equipment to bring it up to what is called rescue fire fighting service level six. And that's not too bad. That's normally what you need for a 737 or an Airbus 320, the type of aircraft that have been flying there in the past. Now, but 787-9 is is category 9, uh, and in Norse we have approval to use fields that are down to level 8 on a normal normal basis. Um, so there was a gap there. There was a gap. We needed 8, and they only had 6. To reduce a further, it's not unheard of. For example, during ETOPS operations, you can have down to 4 on uh, alternates, and uh, for no-term reductions and other alternates, you can, it's quite normal to bring it down a couple of steps. But of course, this was not something you just do. Um, you need to do a careful risk assessment on it, and you need to have some uh, controls in place so that that reduction is acceptable. I think this is where we had a lot of conversation back and forth with, uh, with the uh, aviation authority what would be acceptable in this case. So what we did was, first of all, we were placing all the passengers in the between the forward door pairs, so between door pair one and door pair two, which then shortened sort of the area uh, where the rescue effort could be focused on. Uh, we uh, then did something that you normally don't do, and that is we invited the entire fire rescue team at Troll Station to come to Oslo for a, a day on uh, training on the aircraft. So that would be, when they see the aircraft down there, it would not be the first time they see it. They would actually uh, have seen it. They know how to open the doors. They know exactly what it looks like inside. Uh, and this team trains in, in Oslo anyway. So it wasn't too much of a, of a challenge to, to get them over. So they were trained by our instructors and, and we, uh, we hold the training records for them and everything. And all these things together, uh, and because it was such a like a limited uh, type of operation, we uh, found that it, the that, that gap was was acceptable for for this flight.
1: That's uh, fascinating. I'm, I'm I'm amazed to actually hear that it was level six uh, capability down a troll. I was expecting something far more rudimentary. So that's fascinating to to hear. Um, you've already talked about you. GPS approaches and some of the uh, the approach capability but I'm guessing down in that part of the world uh, you're flying on true not magnetic in terms of compass orientation is that correct
2: uh, you could some operators do however it's not it's it's far south but it's not that far south it's it's about 70 south so uh the automatic switchover happens at uh 80 south on a on a Boeing so we stayed in magnetic and it was not too, um, too extreme. We just had to do conversions of like wind reports were, were made in true and such. Uh, but, uh, again, here, we were falling back to our, uh, philosophy that we sticked with throughout that try to keep it as normal as possible. If we, uh, if we can use magnetic, then let's use magnetic because that's what we normally do in, in most of these cases. And, um, it's quite interesting as well, if you we go quickly back to, uh, to all the preparations and what they have at the, the facilities, they have at the field. The Norwegian Polar Institute, do they take things seriously? I guess, I guess you have to down in these rough, uh, rough climates down there. So uh, they actually have a proper fire truck. It looks like a fire truck you'd see at any European uh, uh, airports. And um, when we did, uh, they did equally... Uh, that much preparation on the ground up side because we were bringing down a radar antenna that they were going to attach to one of these Basler uh, DC3 conversions and it was going to fly. It, it it did fly actually. Uh, just a couple of days after we landed, and they did some sort of scan of the the ice depth. And this antenna was was bulky. It was it was large. So you may have seen in some of the pictures how we used uh, a Volvo front loader to get it off the off the airplane, and. Uh, That's not a a small feat. You don't really want to to take a a front loader close to an aircraft because one of the major risks down there from a technical perspective is that any sort of issue with the aircraft would have been a very bad day. So the uh, ground ops side on north demanded that the Polar Institute prepare a a detailed procedure on how to offload this antenna and other other equipment. And they built a, a custom platform that attached to that front loader so that the front loader never had to actually move that close to the aircraft uh, they just it just placed that platform in front of the cargo door and they could roll off off the cargo that way uh, so they are it's impressive uh it the polar institute what they can do and and what capabilities they have
1: thank you very much and for our listeners, are might be scratching their heads and wondering why we're talking about true or magnetic. Normally, uh, aircraft orientate themselves using uh, magnetic uh, comp- uh, orientations, but uh, certainly towards the north pole, and I guess once you get close towards the south pole, uh, the, there's, there's normally there's so much variation between uh, true and magnetic. Uh, you, you normally use true uh, instead of magnetic this uh, direction, So hopefully that might maybe explain to maybe some of our listeners why we went off a bit of a tangent there, but that was really interesting. And uh, so sort they're of getting towards the, the end of my questions. But the uh, one of the main uh, complexities, I think, would be you had a really long duty. I think it was must have been about 14 or 15 hours from leaving Cape Town to getting back. But you just had that one team on board. How did you manage making sure that crew were alert when they needed to be alert how did you manage the rest talk us about how you managed the the crewing side of things
2: absolutely so we we took off from cape town with a very heavy crew so we had four pilots and uh we had uh, let me think nine cabin crew i think so our max duty would have been 17 hours and uh then we the flight is five hours long you only have 40 passengers uh there was quite a bit of opportunity quite an opportunity to uh, to rest uh on the way over and then to rest on the way back as previous operators that were previous pilots that we talked to they all said the same thing and we experienced it too there is so much adrenaline that uh trying to sleep on this one is, uh, is a challenge. I think I managed to get a little bit of sleep on, on the way back. So it was all good. But of course, he, when it comes to, to rest periods on board, the important thing is to have the opportunity to rest. You don't actually have to sleep, of course. Um, this was also part of the, the risk assessment on how we scheduled the whole thing. We had planned for a uh, three-hour ground stop to offload the cargo and to unload some cargo. Uh, in reality it took four hours. So we were over by one hour, but, um, we had quite a bit, a bit of margin there, uh, that we spent a lot of time talking about all these sort of risk factors. Um, the same thing goes with, uh, you know, in terms of delays. So when it comes to, um, the technical side of things, uh, what do we do if we have an aircraft technical issue while we're down there? We had uh, two aircraft engineers on board, and they had a, a so-called flyaway kit, which was I think the flyaway kit was was almost the same weight as the, the cargo that we we took down because they had everything from spare tires to APU controllers and everything you could imagine that, that could break down there. And uh, there was quite a bit of ta- quite a bit of effort uh, and, and the planning that we spent on, on talking about how do we manage uh, an extensive delay down there. And you mentioned
1: you had four pilots. Did you have two pilots fly southbound, and then the other two fly north, or how did you sort of work out who was going to do what?
2: We uh, we had all four in the flight deck uh, for for both um, uh, both sectors, and we just did a, a slight uh, change of, of crew on on the uh, on the return. But uh, it was, uh, and this is something that we discussed for if we're going to do future flights to 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 Troll, because hopefully this was not a one-time off, and how we will manage, uh, you know, the experience in the flight deck and and uh, uh, this, the crew composition, so to speak.
1: And I can imagine that after such a, a trip that required such meticulous planning, there must be some things that. You have reflected on there's been learning points, maybe things you could have done better. And, and if you were to go back again, which I very much hope you do, what would you do differently?
2: That is uh, it's a long, long list of things. Uh, okay. <laughs> the uh, one thing, a small little detail, which is uh, interesting is that um, if, you st- if you're parked for four hours with the APU running, what happens? You get a fuel imbalance. And, and a fuel imbalance, when it happens on, on, um, uh, you know, in Oslo or in New York, it's not a problem. You use a the, the, the fuel imbalance and, and you, you push the switches and, and you're done. But when you fly to a place like Antarctica, everything you do, you want to have a conversation about beforehand. Ideally, you want to have a risk assessment done beforehand. And this was something that we uh, didn't think of before, uh, before it happened. So we had a conversation on, on the spot There is there. A risk, what are the risks involved with, with this student imbalance? Is there anything um, that we uh, have to think about before we do this procedure? And in the end, there was, there was no problem. We, we did the procedure. But uh, I guess uh, it's things like that that uh, we're going to take one more run through of all the possible things that can happen. As uh, so if we go there again, that we have, uh, you know, ironed out any further unknowns that that we weren't even sure of uh, that were going to be a problem before when we went the first time. The other thing, which I believe is extremely important, is that we keep the mindset that this will never be a normal destination, and we we will have to ensure that we uh, never get complacent. And, and the, the second time we go there should be the same sort of effort as, as the first time we go there. Of course, with the experience of the first time, but, but we can never allow ourselves to think that, well, it's just another uh, turnaround and, and troll. Thank you. And uh,
1: lastly, um, I'm sure you've got lots of very colorful, vivid memories, but which part of the trip leaves the most poignant memory for yourself?
2: We, um, we landed, uh, and we left the aircraft and myself and the, uh, the guy who was next to me on landing, we walked down the runway to see if we could, cause we had spent a lot of time with that study on, on, um, on, uh, uh the bearing strength of the ice. So of course we were curious to see what does it look like on the actual, uh, touchdown and we couldn't find it. It was impossible. It, it, the ice is so strong. It was impossible to see where we had touched down. So, so that we didn't see But as we're looking down on the on the ice runway, looking for this, I look up and I and I. It's just this de- white desert of just ice everywhere. And then the aircraft is just parked there uh, on the on the ice. And that image is going to stay with me for a long time. Wow. That's uh, yeah. Should be sounds like a very. Uh,
1: a very uh, memorable image that's uh, imprinted. Yeah. Uh, so, Captain Lindström, the fleet chief pilot from North's Atlantic Airways, thank you so much for taking the time to give such an in depth overview as to what went on behind the scenes. And um, the more you talk, the more I actually underestimated just what went on behind the scenes to make it such a success. So, uh, thank you very much for your time. I hope to see one of your airplanes in Antarctica again, and hopefully we can uh, report about it and, and cover it. And uh, thank you for uh, chatting to me. It's been really exciting. So thank you very much.
2: Thank you very much, Chris. It's uh, It was great talking to you. Thank you very much.